or to make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Please be seated. We're going to go ahead and stay in that Matthew passage. So turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 3. did the reading. I guess I should pray that prayer we pray. How about, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we're still in Advent, so we've been talking about welcoming Jesus. Uh, And last Sunday we started by talking about staying awake Uh, looking forward to and anticipating the Lord's return. And I I said that we don't actually literally stop living life, obviously. We still eat, we still drink, we still get married. Uh, We just live in the anticipation, the excitement of what's going to happen and prepared for the eventuality that everything could be interrupted and, and all of this could change. And it was immediately after the service that Georgia pointed out how I missed a very obvious illustration because my, my sister-in-law uh, was, was pregnant at the time, and we're, we're all wondering if she was going to make it to Thanksgiving uh, a few weeks back, and the, uh, you know, she did make it, and we ate and drank, and we had a great time, but her point was, you know, if the baby had come during dinner, we would obviously have changed plans, because welcoming the baby uh, takes priority over dinner. I don't know how I missed that one. That's why Georgia makes the big bucks. All that said, my brother and his wife had their little girl on Monday, and uh, that's only my second niece. We're very excited to go down and meet her. Um, I've provided most of the girls in the family. It's nice to see the girls catching up a little bit. Um, and everyone's very excited. We all want to go meet baby Sophia. But uh, today we're talking about welcoming the, uh, the, the, this theme of welcoming Jesus we're continuing with. And we're not welcoming baby Jesus today. We're, we're welcoming grown-up Jesus. Uh, this story takes place when Jesus is 30 years old, just about to begin his earthly ministry. And before Jesus even says a word, we get this formal introduction from his cousin, John the Baptist. Now, if our purpose in Advent is to learn how we should welcome Jesus this year, uh, if you like, we could say that we're learning how to show hospitality to our Lord, right? How to properly anticipate his arrival. Uh, Paul refers to it as loving his appearing. How can we best do that? Well, we've talked about anticipating the second coming. I said that one way that we could do that is to get excited, right? 
Uh, Jesus is commanding us to stay awake, right? Uh, to live life fully while knowing that this life is not everything. We don't face that reality with dread, but with excitement. If you're awake and, you know, I, he likens it to, you know, a thief in the night thing. But, you know, if you're awake and waiting for a prowler with a shotgun, you don't have to dread the intrusion, do you? You're ready. Uh, you can enjoy the adrenaline high of just waiting for the chance to pepper his backside, right? You know, think of it that way. And for Jesus' friends, the second coming is when everything gets fixed. We talked about that. So we can get excited, right? But in today's passage, the focus seems to be here on, on Jesus' first coming, which is what you would expect with Christmas coming. And yet, again, we're not looking at the birth story yet. We're not even looking at the prophecies about his birth. Instead, we're looking at the ministry of John the Baptist. Maybe that seems like a strange topic with Christmas coming, but again, it fits the Advent theme. Um, so if our goal is to welcome Jesus, if our goal is to love his coming, then it makes total sense to look at John the Baptist because that was legit his only job. That's why he, he uses that. We see this quote from Isaiah here in verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So we're talking about making roads, a path for Jesus. And John was born to make straight paths, a good road for Jesus. Now, how do you make good, straight roads? That's a serious question. I'm from Philly. I'm not sure I've ever actually seen one. <laughs> good roads weren't the forte down there. Uh, but if a straight road, a straight road is synonymous with being welcome, right? Good roads have an inviting look. And John the Baptist is here to invite Jesus into the scene, to make a good road. He existed to welcome Jesus' arrival. It's what he lived for. And that was true even before he was born. He was the one that was leaping for joy in his mother's womb, right, before either of them were born. And now John has this job of rolling out a red carpet for Jesus' ministry. His job is, is Jesus' chief welcomer. And it's even more important now in his adulthood than it was in his infancy uh, because most people didn't get the chance to welcome Jesus as a newborn, Right? It was kind of a limited guest list. You had the angels, right? You had a few shepherds, some animals, right? And in some ways, that's what we like about Christmas. It's what makes Christmas kind of fun and sweet. It's sort of the quietness of the story. Uh, and babies are great, right? Uh, we love to welcome babies, especially when we're not the ones dealing with them. Like, you know, it's easy for me to welcome a new niece. I'm not the one staying up with her. It's not my problem, right? Uh, and I think likewise, it's easy for us to welcome baby Jesus. Welcoming grown-up Jesus is another matter entirely, because babies are easy to like. Grown-ups, not so much. Grown-ups have opinions. Grown-ups talk back to you. Grown-ups are just difficult. That's why newborns are way more popular than the general public. And as I've said before, people are kind of the worst. Uh, and they don't always get easier with age, and that's what makes hospitality hard. But we do want to welcome Jesus, right? That seems like a pretty good policy as Christians. So how can we get people to welcome Jesus when he arrives on the scene? You have to remember, at this point in the story, he's just a carpenter from Nazareth, right? That means he's a stranger to these people. They don't really know who he is. Most of us don't love strangers very much. You'll recall that the literal definition of hospitality in Scripture is love for strangers. And hospitality doesn't come naturally to us. 
we're very suspicious by nature. Uh, like I said about people knocking at my front door, if I don't know you, I probably don't want to talk to you, and that's partly why I think door-to-door Christmas caroling has faded and become nearly obsolete. Nobody wants strangers at their door. Now, we can go to a nursing home and be welcomed, but the average homeowner doesn't want to have their evening interrupted by amateurs like us. So if Jesus is a stranger to these people, how do you get them to welcome him? How does anyone get used to a stranger? Well, if my opinion of a stranger is going to change and improve, right, it it usually requires meeting them, right? It helps to have somebody introduce them. Having a few references doesn't hurt. It really helps if someone can vouch for you, a personal connection of some kind, you know. Think of it as a personal marketing campaign. Somebody who's going to make you look good, an opening act, if you like. Someone who's going to warm up the crowd and get people excited. And a good opening act can make the main act seem a lot better. And that's why the best comedians always have somebody to open for them, right? George and I went to see Brian Regan a few weeks back, and, and we went to see him in Reading because that was cheaper than seeing him anywhere else. And um, I've been following Brian Regan for years. Very funny man. But I would say, and I don't know, I think George would agree, I don't think it was his best material at the Reading show. I mean, you know, some of his classic stuff was, was better. It was funny enough, but not, not like the stuff from 15 years ago. But it was fine uh, because I was already in the mood to laugh, in part because I had already bought the tickets, right? But also, there was an opening act. I don't remember the guy's name, but he was funny, and he set a good tone for the evening, so you were already kind of ready, and you were in the mood to laugh, right? And musical groups do the same thing, right? Uh, they get m- more excited for the main band if you bring in an opening act that's good, too, right? And, and politicians will do this at rallies. They'll find speakers to really get the crowd going before the main candidate comes out to give their speech, and that's usually a disappointment, but that's okay, right? And, and, and the point is that a good opening act makes welcoming the main act easier. And John the Baptist is essentially the opening act for Jesus. That's his job. Go out there, warm up the crowd, roll out the red carpet. That's what Isaiah foretold, and that's why Matthew quoted it in verse 3. But i got to be honest with you. John the Baptist is not a conventional opening act. (laughs) I mean, you know that the opener is not supposed to outshine the main guy. That's not supposed to happen. But I'm not sure if John the Baptist outshines anybody... He's kind of a mess, isn't he? I mean, verse 4 kind of gives you the picture of a wild man. He, he's, he's wearing camel's hair. I didn't realize, but Georgia told me that camel hair is now used for, like, high-end suits. I don't think that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> he's got a leather belt. I mean, okay, that's nice. But he also eats bugs and honey. This is publicly known. Matthew's recording it for us, Right? I can endorse roughly half of that diet. I don't know about you, but I judge people by what they eat. Vegans, yeah, I judge them. Um, Some people can eat raw ground beef. I mean, I like it rare, but I can't quite get there with people like that. Uh, Some people eat kale. I mean, there's no accounting for taste. But some things are beyond gross. Like vegetables, raw beef, even kale, all of those things are at least arguably food, right? But in my mind, some stuff was never meant to be put in the human mouth, and bugs are on that list. 
I don't have this in my notes. It's very disgusting. I one time got a fly stuck in my mouth, and I don't know how it got there. This happened to me at work some years ago, and it got like stuck up in here, and it was like, and I was like, what is that thing? And it was buzzing, and it was disgusting. I still can't forget the feel of it. John's diet is disgusting. And it raises a couple of questions, one of which is how in the world did he harvest enough of these locusts to live on? Because it's not like catching fish exactly. And some questions have no scriptural answers. But the other question I have is this. Everybody eats, right? Usually multiple times a day, which means that John had to eat a lot of bugs to get the necessary calories. What are the odds that he hid these meals from the general public? Like, how many of these people have witnessed this grotesque routine? I mean, the sight of a wild man eating bugs is not the kind of thing you can unsee once you've seen it, right? Like, it sticks with you. John just seems like a strange character, and and everybody had to know that. They've seen this for a long enough time. And so if we go on appearances... John doesn't seem like the best spokesman for the coming savior. I mean, if I'm looking for someone to make me look good and roll out the red carpet, wild bug-eating guy wouldn't necessarily make the cut. Okay, well then again, you know, maybe his gifts are more in warming up the crowd. You know, maybe he's such an inspiring speaker that people will enthusiastically welcome Jesus on that account. But then you get to verse 7 and it kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? He doesn't exactly give the warm fuzzies to people. And I know you can poke the audience a little. I do that even with you guys sometimes. And it's not always ineffective. And, and, you know, and I can attest that high school students actually respect some measure of verbal mockery. I think that they, they thrive off of it. Uh, and uh, they know it's in good fun. I do it to get a laugh out of them at Excelsior. But a lot of teach- teenagers have this caustic sense of humor, right? So it can be effective. But it's one thing to rib the audience a bit, but brood of vipers, that's a little much. It's a little sour, and somehow I don't think the Pharisees and Sadducees were known for their levity. (laughs) Self-deprecating humor wasn't really their thing. But John's ministry doesn't center on debating the Pharisees and Sadducees. His mission, his goal, is to make a path for Jesus. And the primary thing John would have us do in preparation for Jesus' coming... The whole primary theme, the main command of this passage, is to repent. When he says the kingdom of heaven is near, what he essentially means is that the king himself is near. Jesus' kingdom is not earthly, but it follows him wherever he goes, and he's nearby. And if the king is near, one way to show hospitality is to make room. And that's what repentance does. Repentance means laying down the sin and idols in your heart. It means emptying yourself to make room for Jesus. Now, I don't know about any of you, but we have spent the last week engaged in our annual pre-Christmas purge of the house. We got our Christmas tree on Tuesday, uh, and as soon as we got home, we realized there was no way Christmas could go up until we cleared all the crap out. I couldn't bring up the Rubbermaid bins because I couldn't even walk past last year's Christmas junk in the basement that the kids had left out. And I couldn't even bring the tree in because the porch was covered with shoes, half of which no longer fit anyone. 
And so now the back of the van is loaded with boxes for the thrift store and several bags of trash later as well. You know, we can mostly walk in the house, mostly. And look, we do this every year at Christmas. This is what we do. You got to purge the old stuff to make room before you can bring anything else in. And it takes work. It's physical work. It's mental work. Sometimes it's emotional work because you're like attached to something that you really don't need anymore. Letting go of stuff can be painful. But we have to do that first before we can enjoy Christmas. And that's kind of how repentance works. It's like purging. It's like cleansing the house of all leaven in the Old Testament. It's hard to welcome Jesus when we have no room in the proverbial inn. We need to purge some stuff. And it's far worse than just house clutter, isn't it? Because as Calvin rightly observed, our hearts are idol factories. Your hearts, the human mind, is perpetually filled with idols that are competing for your attention and ultimately your worship. And we are always worshiping something because that's what we were made to do. That's how we're designed. And some idols are maybe worse than others, but all of them start as good things that become God things. They clutter our minds and our hearts, and that's not welcoming to Jesus. It's not a straight road. It's more like a Philly road. Jesus can handle bad roads, but it's not hospitable. Every year we sing joy to the world, and we say, let every heart prepare him room, right? The most tangible way that every heart can prepare him room is first and foremost by purging the idols that we're storing there. And that means repentance. Now, there was always some confusion about what Jesus had come to do, right? And even the disciples thought he had come to start a political revolution. And surely many of the common people, when they pictured a coming Messiah, a lot of these people that are here listening to John, they're thinking of a return to the glory of Solomon, right? The wealth, the power, the grandeur, victory over enemies. But Repentance, a call to repentance, seems to indicate that this is a very different kind of revolution. The reason John calls for repentance is because Jesus' first coming makes no sense if you don't see your own sin as the biggest problem. Not Rome, not the Samaritans, not your marriage, or your job, or your kids, or any of the other various external pressures that you're struggling with. Your biggest problem is you. And the better you understand that, the more likely you are to welcome Jesus. Not the Jesus of your inflated political imagination, but the Christ who came to live in poverty and eventually to die on Calvary so that the sign of baptism would take on a spiritual reality. John's message is a call to welcome Jesus by coming to him empty-handed. He doesn't ask for contributions or, he, or try to impose a greater effort to keep the law. He calls people to admit that they have nothing to offer and to come get washed. He does this looking like a wild mountain man and people flock to see this guy. Look again at verses 5 and 6. We're just told that, that, he, that he looks like this wild man. It's like, and then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. The entire province is coming out to see this guy and get baptized. And not only do they just come and get washed up anonymously. Verse 6 says that they're coming and confessing their sins to a wild-haired, crazy man who lives in a van down by the river. And what that says to me is that the call to repentance has power. 
and it has power because we are all acutely aware of our own sinfulness. Try as we may to hide it and avoid it and push it out of our minds, it's always there, and it's a burden to us. It clutters and defiles and darkens our minds and our hearts, and our efforts to deal with it ourselves only add to the problem. We can tell ourselves that our sin isn't that sinful. We can try to forget it or pretend it isn't there. We can sin further to hide the earlier sins. We can vow yet again to be better and try harder, and we always end up weighed down all the more. And it's like being depressed about all the clutter in your house and then solving the problem by buying more clutter so that you'll feel better about it. And repentance is easy to fake. You can go to church, you can take communion, you confess to minor sins or what Jerry Bridges calls respectable sins. Confession has a healing effect. And even unbelievers will admit to feeling better when they get things off their chest. But confession of sin in and of itself is not enough to fix you because confession doesn't undo the crime. But in John the Baptist's ministry, the message is to confess and repent. And repent, the Greek word is metanoia, meaning literally to change your mind, to reverse your thinking. And maybe that's why John had so little patience for the Pharisees and the Sadducees. I think it's very helpful that this passage includes John yelling at these guys. Because negative examples are sometimes more helpful than positive ones. I want you to look again at that exchange because I think it's the climax of the passage. Verses 7 to 10, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Once again, not the most welcoming message. Of course, his point is not necessarily to to welcome visitors. It's more to uh, welcome Jesus, right? But John the Baptist is not a great welcoming committee in the general sense. We would never sign him up as a greeter, would we, Joan? I mean, it's kind of surprising to see these Pharisee and Sadducee guys here at all, right? I mean, I see them there, and my initial thought is like, isn't it good they came? And honestly, when he asks them, like, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I kind of want to say, like, um, you? Like, you're the one out here preaching fire and brimstone on everyone, right? Like, if you didn't want us to come, you could have said so. Like, we didn't come all the way out here to be berated by some homeless-looking guy. Like, ever heard of dressing for the job, dude? Like, what are you doing here? Like, how would you respond to such treatment? John is rough, almost crass in this scene. He's kind of threatening and, frankly, not very seeker-sensitive. He shows very little hospitality to these guys, it seems. Unless we think it's only a small handful that he's yelling at, Matthew says that many came. And the parallel passage in Luke says that John was saying these things generally to the crowds. Meaning that the Pharisees and Sadducees must have made up a pretty large percentage of the crowd. Enough so that Luke indicates that nearly everyone's getting yelled at. Why is John so angry at these guys? 
It's because he doesn't think the repentance is genuine. How did he know their repentance wasn't genuine? I mean, honestly, how can he know that they're not ready to receive Jesus? I mean, we know. We've read the rest of the book, most of us, right? But how can John justify judging that way? Well, there are several clues in the verses we just read. Because when John asks in verse 37, who warned you? I think he can ask that probably because these guys haven't been here for John's sermons. These guys didn't come out here to listen to John's message. They came out here for the washing. They wanted the sign without the thing that it signified. It's kind of like showing up to church just for the communion half or asking for baptism without intending to be a member. We're like being a Christmas and Easter Christian who only does church twice a year. And John knows his flock well enough, and he knows these faces are not regulars. They're trying to sneak in by the side door, and so he calls them out by asking how they even heard about this meeting. In verse 8, John makes clear that he finds their repentance unconvincing in part because he hasn't seen the fruit of it. And you have to remember who these Pharisees and Sadducees were. The Pharisees prided themselves on law-keeping. They're the religious conservatives in Israel, but they're also legalists, and they burdened people. They burdened the poor with their regulations, and they were hypocrites, and Jesus often had choice words for them. He spends most of chapter 23 of Matthew covering that. The Sadducees, on the other hand, didn't even believe in heaven and hell. They didn't accept most of the Old Testament or the existence of angels, or even a resurrection. They were the theological liberals of their day, rejecting almost every relevant doctrine. They didn't even affirm an afterlife. So why on earth are they even here? Why does this even matter? And I think the reason John can call them both out here is that these guys have shown no evidence that they have truly repented, and he would have known in part by their clothes. Because both the Pharisees and Sadducees dressed distinctly so that everybody knew who they were. In fact, that's one of the things that irritated Jesus about them so much. They liked to be known by their dress and treated with honor. They've shown no change of mind because John could recognize them by their clothes. Now, the Pharisees had overall pretty good theology, but if a Pharisee were to truly repent, he would have to abandon his entire legalistic program. He would have to forsake everything he lived for and was proud of. He would need to take all of his law-keeping and count it as rubbish, as Paul would say. He would have to forsake even his robes. If a Sadducee were to truly repent, he would need to stop being a Sadducee. <laughs> I mean, they also oppressed the poor, but also their entire theology was useless. That wasn't even a salvageable school of thought. John could look at these guys and immediately say, you guys don't get it, do you? But verse 9 is where he really exposes these guys. The fact is that both of these groups, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the liberals and the conservatives, they both have in common that they place their faith largely in their genetics. Their birthright is their ethnic identity. We are sons of Abraham, and it's all good. <clears throat> and this baptism thing is just kind of padding our resume. It's sort of adding to our street cred. We go to all the services. 
It's one more thing to add to our list of already impressive accomplishments. And as Abraham's sons, we have an inherited relationship with God. And John can already see them forming this thought in their heads, and he just nukes the argument before they can even get started. And he basically says, like, newsflash, guys, God does not need you. And in fact, you guys are on thin ice. This is false repentance, and they're not truly ready to welcome Jesus. And so John's indictment brings, rings through, ultimately, throughout all of Jesus' ministry. He's predicting exactly why they're going to have so much trouble in their relationship with Jesus over the coming years. He sees through their facade and knows that they had better change their tune. And I thought about that verse, about the... Abraham being their father and and earlier this week I found myself reflecting on another prophecy about John the Baptist that isn't mentioned here it's not the Isaiah passage but the one in Malachi Uh, and it's actually how the Old Testament ends and and some of you may be familiar with Malachi 4 verses 5 and 6 which are the last two verses of the Old Testament Malachi says behold God speaking I will send you Elijah the prophet meaning John the Baptist Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. I thought, like, that's a beautiful promise. And there's something wonderful about generations embracing each other. It's part of what's beautiful about going to sing in the nursing home even this afternoon, right? But the reverse is also true, that it's an ugly thing when generations are set against each other. And I don't know about you, but I feel that today. I I think the culture changes so rapidly and that there's always a gap. And generations today think differently. They live differently. They vote differently. Uh, None of my fellow millennials say, okay, boomer, and mean it as a compliment. And nearly everyone blames the millennials for ruining society, right? I've done it myself, and I'm one of them. Uh, There is a lot of mistrust from generation to generation. And I take it the same was true in the biblical era. And Malachi said that part of John the Baptist's mission would be to reverse that. And I thought to myself this week, did he succeed in the mission? Because what struck me was the contrast with verse 9. And the only time John mentions fathers and sons is when he announces that the blood relationship is actually meaningless. And perhaps verse 9, I thought, means that the mission failed. And perhaps it was too late to heal the generational wounds, and maybe that's why Jerusalem had to be destroyed. But then I thought, maybe there's another way of thinking about this. Maybe Malachi meant, ultimately, that the heart of the father would be turned toward the son, and that the son would turn his heart to the father, and that ultimately, once all was accomplished, and the true son had lived and died and risen again and ascended back to the father, then many more sons and daughters would have their hearts turned back to the father as well. I think Malachi's prophecy holds true and is coming true every day, because as the kingdom grows and more and more hearts turn to the father by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is still raising up sons and daughters for Abraham. But it always starts with the same message that John the Baptist preached, which is repent. Don't just come to get wet. And don't just come to the table for a scrap of bread and a thimble of wine. If you really want to welcome Jesus, prepare him room and repent. 
And John's message doesn't stop there. Repentance is not the end in itself. That's not the ultimate goal. The reason you do it, the entire purpose of repentance is to pave the way for Jesus. You're welcoming the one who is mightier than John, the one whose shoes he's not fit to carry, the one who baptizes with water and fire, and the one who sends the Holy Spirit. John says that Jesus has his winnowing fork in his hand. I know that's symbolism us modern-day city slickers don't really understand, but the fork is a tool for separating the wheat and chaff, right? And Jesus will make that separation final one day. The righteous from the unrighteous, the ones who turn to the Father and those who don't, the ones who love is coming and those who don't. But it wasn't John's job to do that. It wasn't for him to separate the wheat and the chaff. And I think it's interesting that nowhere are we told in this passage that he actually refused to baptize these guys. And I thought to myself, it may very well be that he baptized many a Pharisee and many a Sadducee. And I bet that some of them eventually did come to true repentance. Crazier things have happened. We know for a fact that some Pharisees followed Jesus, like Nicodemus. So John uses harsh words, but he doesn't actually drive them off. Let me just say, I'm not Jesus. I'm not even John the Baptist. And I can't read your hearts. And it's not my job to do the winnowing. But as a minister of the gospel, it is my duty to echo what John proclaimed and call every one of us to repentance. Because that's how you roll out a red carpet for Jesus. Not with twinkle lights and candles and trees, not that there's anything wrong with those, but as Paul told the people of Athens in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And that message hasn't changed in 2,000 years. Repentance is how you welcome Jesus, whether we're talking about the first or the second coming. And if you've already repented, keep repenting. Walk in repentance. And then tell your unbelieving neighbors to do the same. That's how you get ready for Jesus' coming. That's how you make a straight road. We don't have to fix ourselves or put on a show, and we certainly can't trust in our earthly lineage and our bloodlines. All we can do is come broken, empty-handed, confessing our sins, repent, come empty, and Jesus can work with that. Let's pray. Gracious God, our Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, Lord, and that his message still resonates. Lord, we as your people, help us to model what it looks like to walk in repentance. Lord, to constantly do house cleaning, to purge ourselves of our idols, to purge them from our minds. Lord, give us your spirit. Help us to do this. Help us to welcome your son. And we thank you that he is the sort, of, <laughs> the sort of savior who if he comes in and finds all of this clutter still here, he will elbow it out of the way. Lord, cleanse us. Open us to his coming. Help us to welcome him. Teach us to repent. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology.